Last week's message, coupled with this week's message, revolves around the theme of, of Psalms 90, verse 12. And the, the Psalms 90 was written by Moses himself, which makes it one of the oldest psalms um, in Scripture. And they actually refer to it as the prayer of Moses. And in verse 12, it, it says this. It says, teach us to number our days and to recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Well, today we're going we're gonna to focus on how to love in light of what matters most. We're going to talk about loving today. Um, L-O-V-E. It's a word that has a lot of power behind it, a lot of connotations that are associated with it. Um, the word can be used as a noun, but I wanted to use it today as a verb. And you guys remember the old DC Talk song, Love is a Verb? Just, okay, never mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you some information on that one in a second. I went into iTunes to find Love is a Verb, and I typed it all in, and all these songs about Love is a Verb came up. And there were so many different artists, I couldn't even, I was, I was going through, and there's, there's male and there's female. I found rock. I found country. I found R&B. And I even found a Chinese song of Love is a Verb. The idea of love being a verb and being used as a verb is very prolific, but again, I was looking for that, that uh, DC Talk version. Um, and I found out something. Going back to my hip-hop roots of 1992, um, L-O-V-E was spelled L-U-V. So it makes a big difference. And we wonder what's wrong with our youth today. Am I right? L-U-V, um, L-O-L, T-G-I-F, whatever the acronym you want to use. Love, it is an action. It's something we do, something we're involved in. It's something that we choose to do, something we volunteer to do. I'm here to tell you that love is not a feeling. And we need to distinguish between the two, and I'm going to talk about that. How many of us, you love your spouse? All right, good, good job. Some of you need to raise it a little higher. There you go. You can raise your wife's hand too. That's okay. Um, we love our children. We love our family. Those are things that we choose to do. But we don't always feel that. Am I correct? You don't have to raise your hand on that one. It's hard. Sometimes we don't feel like loving our children, especially if they're being nasty to us. Or your spouse, especially after the, the, the game and the, the Steelers lost. Sorry. Sorry. The love that we're going to talk about today is a verb. Um, our lives and our ability to love is a precious commodity. Um, all of our lives have already been um, ordained for us. Um, we have a limited time here on this earth. Somewhere on you, you have an expiration date stamped on you. It's there somewhere. You can look for it later. It's there. Our bodies, this thing right here, it's going to fail us. But when I was reading through and I was, I was preparing for the message, I was, I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And what does it say? There's three things that will last forever. Hope, let's try this again. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these things is love. A life well lived, once you're done, it all boils down to love. That's what it's going to boil down to. Our ability to love and be loved is one of the prime reasons we as believers exist. That's what God has called us to do. It's actually the greatest commandment found in Scripture. We're called to love God 
and we're called to love others. Two things. So how are we to love in, in, in light of what matters most to this world? Well, Colossians 3, 12 through 14 gives us a glimpse of that. And that's going to be the basis of our, um, of our servant today. And it says this. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if you have any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. That's a pretty good scripture right there. That's pretty good. On the way to church this morning, the radio's, the radio's on and there's a song called Blink by a group called Revive. It's a Christian song. And I'd encourage you to listen to it if you don't know what it is. And it's my sermon in three minutes. It was pretty cool. It talks about the brevity of life and not blinking and, and how we are called to love. So if you have a chance, you know, Google that, YouTube it, and listen to that song Blink by Revive. It was pretty neat. From reading the scripture, um, I've gained three things I'd like to pull out today to, to help us understand how we are called to love in the light of what matters most. And so if you're taking notes, the first thing that you're going to fill in is, number one, we are called to love like I am God's child, like you are God's child. Colossians 3 says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It tells us in that scripture right there, very abundantly clear, that we are God's chosen. He has chosen us. We are his in the simplest terms, we've been adopted by God. He came looking for us, and he took us in as his very, very own. Now, as I look over here, and, I, and I've been thinking and praying this week, we have several families in Novation Church that either have adopted or are in the process of adopting, even right now. And so I got to thinking, why do they do that? You know, it, it, it's mandated in Scripture, but not everybody adopts. Why do they do it? Well, you know Why? It boils down to one simple thing, because they have love and compassion for a child that needs a home. That's the reason why they're doing it. I guarantee they're not adopting to, to get a financial leg up on society. I see heads bobbing back there going, yeah. And they're not adopting to gain some sort of uh, level of, of status in society. You know, from what I've heard and what I've talked to some of these families and knowing what they're going through, the adoption process can be heart-wrenching. And even when you get that child in your home, there's no guarantee that it's going to be a perfect marriage between you and that, the child and your family. Very rarely does an adoption occur that runs smoothly from beginning to end and with no challenges. There are challenges with that. You know, from paperwork to the actual issues of the child, there's going to be difficulty. But, but despite those difficulties... The overriding factor that, that overlooks all these issues is love. It's compassion and it's kindness. And that's exactly what God did to us. He looked at, he looked at us and go, you're still worth it. Even after everything you've gone through, you're still worth it to me. And I want to take you in. Some of you don't know this, but I've, I'm adopted. I haven't shared this story. I'm going to share it now. Um, shortly after my birth, my biological father, he just up and left the picture of our family, um, and he's never resurfaced. 
I think about 1995, I did a, a pretty comprehensive search, a database search in the United States looking for him to no avail. Um, my mom met a man named Carl when I was at the age of five. And uh, shortly afterwards, uh, he married my mom. And subsequently, he, did, he wanted and he asked me, can I adopt you? Can I take your name? Uh, will you take my name so that you will be my son? And I was, at that time, by the time they got married and by the time the adoptions, it was right around 10, 11 years of age. Um, I had mixed feelings about it, but I knew that this is what, that was right for me. And um, I changed my last name from Smith, pretty generic, right, to Bullion. And I was recognized now by the court system and by, by the world that I am the son of Carl Bullion. I now had a father. I never had one before. Um, my dad today is affectionately known as Papa in our, our household. Um, but I think about him and I think about God in the, in the respect that someone so cared for me that he was willing to, to navigate everything that it came with and took me in as a son. And that is exactly what God has done for you. He's adopted you. I'm very, very grateful for that. The second thing that we find in that, that verse from Colossians that if we're to love in the light of what matters most, we're called to love like I am forgiven, like you're forgiven. This is where I'm going to spend a majority of my time today, and this is, this is going to get kind of tough, I have a feeling. It, Colossians 3 says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And as I was preparing the message this week, and even today, I'm sensing that forgiveness can be an issue for people. And... The thought of forgiveness could be stirring up emotions in people right now. And I want you to understand that it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this together. Forgiveness can be like a uh, vitamin C pill that you're supposed to take, right? It's huge. It's forbearing. You don't want to have to take it. It's, oh, I'd rather get my vitamin C a different way. Forgiveness is like that. It, it can be a hard pill to swallow. Who of you in this room, or even at the sound of my voice, you've not encountered these things? You've ever been shamed, been abandoned, been lied to, been cheated upon, been wrongfully accused. Maybe you've been the recipient of bad advice. Maybe you've been abused. Or maybe you've been, you fill in the blank. The result of all those things that happen to us over time builds two things in our lives. It builds anger and hurt, resentment. There's other things too. These are normal emotions that occur when this happens. So please know that if someone wrongs you, it's okay to feel angry for a short period of time or feel hurt. That's part of life. But being a believer does not mean we're exempt from things that happen to us. I gave my testimony two weeks ago, and I mentioned that I thought, you know, after becoming a believer, I thought things would be even more smooth and, and things would be even better. It's not the case. It's not the case at all. And I'm actually held now to a much higher standard. If anger and hurt are not dealt with in our lives, it's going to lead to some very bad um, stuff in our lives. Unresolved hurt and anger that you've experienced leads to this thing called unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, if not dealt with, leads to bitterness. And subsequently, bitterness will just lead to destruction. 
I've heard bitterness as described as a root. Um, and, a, and a root, you know, if you have a garden, if it's not dealt with immediately, it has the, the propensity to devastate your garden. Um, we had a house built in 2003 up in Loveland, built from the ground up. And there was a little plot of land between my house and the house to the west, my neighbor's house. And it was about 20 feet long and about 8 feet wide. And it was just dirt. They didn't cover it up. It wasn't my plot of land. It was my neighbor's. But um, we kind of managed it together. And as the first summer rolled around, I noticed this, this, this uh, weed that started growing. And it was kind of a vine. It was kind of long. And it had these beautiful colors on it and beautiful leaves and white flowers. It was kind of pretty, actually. I thought it was a ground cover at first. People, if you're a gardener, you know what I'm talking about here. It's called bindweed, B-I-N-D, bindweed. And it's not overly menacing at first. And what would happen is when I was mowing my grass, I would just go over the, the, the dirt area and just kind of cut off the top of it just to kind of keep it at bay. Well, the, the scenario here is the bindweed is, 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 is bitterness, and the, the, the two that I'm trying to join here is, is if left at the surface, it just, it's not too menacing and it just kind of does that. But what it's doing underneath the ground, it's permeating the entire area. And not only is it going, going along the surface, but the, the, weed, the, the roots that go into this weed are huge. They're as, they're as long as tree roots can go. Um, I remember pulling one of them one time out of the ground, and I'm yanking, I'm pulling, I'm pulling, and I held it up, and it was, the root was as long as I was tall. And if you guys are guessing, I'm six foot nine. That wasn't a joke. To eradicate these weeds, it was important that you just don't chop off the top of them. You've got to get down underneath. You've got to get to the root of it or find a really good poison. I'll talk about that later. We had to get to the root of the plant to get it to stop being worse. Simply managing the surface was not going to deal with the problems that we're facing. And the same thing goes with, with unforgiveness and bitterness. My next door neighbor one day, I saw her out there pulling and pulling and pulling. And she had enough. She had a pile big enough to fill a 30-gallon trash bag full of these weeds. So my question for you is, how much, how much unforgiveness, bitterness are you carrying today? Maybe it's just a handful. Maybe it's not that much at all. And maybe you've got two sacks full with you. Hear me out. Unforgiveness uh, can carry over into a destructive pattern in your life. It doesn't mean that you forget what has happened to you. I want to make that abundantly clear. It doesn't mean that you, for, you, for, you have forgotten what happened. But it just simply means that you forgive what has happened for you, to you. Forgiveness, like love, it's not a feeling. It's an action. It's a choice that we must take. It's a decision that we're not going to stew on it any longer. It's a decision that we're not going to bring it up in the heat of battle with your spouse or with your child, and you're going you're to nitpick at that one piece. And it's certainly not a bullet in the chamber that you're going to load any time that you feel necessary when you come out gunslinging. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. I, am, I actually have the word forgiven tattooed on my arm, and whether you're a tattoo person or not. Um, I chose to do this as a reminder for myself and for other people when I meet them. Um, when I got the tattoo, I sat down with a guy named John, um, and he started to tattoo, and he goes, I don't tattoo very many pastors. 
I, I told him, I said, I, I can't imagine that you do. And as we're talking, we're, we're getting to know each other a little bit, and he told me that he used to teach Sunday school at a Catholic church. And at this time, I'm at a church up in uh, Fort Collins, a pretty large church, and I said, well, John, what, have you ever considered coming back into teaching? Why don't I run the children's program? Why don't you come and, and come alongside of us, and you can, you can come teach the children there? And he goes, well, you're a pastor. You know, if, if you only knew the bad stuff that I, I did, you wouldn't even let me in the door of the church. And I said, John, do you understand the words that you're writing on my arm? You've already been forgiven if you accept that, that, that gift that Jesus is giving. You've been forgiven of that. Um, I'm grateful that I got to meet him, and he actually subsequently did a couple of other tattoos for me. And we've, we've, we've made, we made a, a good connection over the years. Scripture says that he who has been forgiven much loves much. And that's from, that's from Luke chapter 7. If you were completely honest with you right with yourself right now, and when you've been hurt, someone has done you wrong, what's your first inclination to do um, to that person? I see some people balling up their fists, getting ready to fight. Is it mercy or is it judgment? I'll be quick to say that, you know, I lean a little more towards judgment from time to time than I do mercy. Um, if you've ever taken the uh, spiritual gift analysis, my, my mercy uh, levels raise and it kind of like the, the ocean does from time to time. Some days I'll be high on mercy and some days I'll take it and I'm, I'm rock bottom. Mercy triumphs over judgment, we're told in James 2. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Both of those responses that we have, either, either the fight or to, to be compassionate with somebody, they're learned behaviors. And because it's a learned behavior, um, that means we can actually relearn something. And it's not too late. So if, you, if you're that person that leans a little bit more towards judgment, know that there is hope for you. And know that if, uh, if you're a mercy person, that you can be swayed. So just make sure you're uh, keeping straight with that. Forgiveness is a choice. Um, this Friday uh, night, we got a chance to go see a movie called Unbroken. Very, very powerful movie, and I would, um, anybody over the age of 13, it would, it would be appropriate for. Anybody younger, I think it, would, it wouldn't be. But um, it's a phenomenal movie about a man named Louis Zampernini, and I'm not going to give away too much of the story, but I'm going to fast forward through it. And this gentleman um, was imprisoned for over two years in a Japanese POW camp. He was beaten, and I mean beaten to the, to the point uh, within inches of his life almost every single day for two straight years. He was um, beaten by a spe specific guard. He was nicknamed the Bird. Louis Zampernini's torture was even known by um, fellow guardsmen as a, uh, a sadistic and cruel monster. He was hated by many of his fellow countrymen and even many of the guards that he worked with. This guy was not a very good guy. And prior to going to see the movie, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, YouTube videos that you can watch. And so I actually watched some of these prior to go going to see the movie. And he, he, there's a point in one of the videos where Louis doesn't go into great detail because I believe he's too grieved at what has occurred to him in his life. He has um, had things done to him that he was not even able to speak about. During the movie there was a woman that was sitting next to me. She was an older woman. She was from that generation, the World War II generation. And even from the very beginning of the movie to the end, she began sobbing 
and especially at the torture part, she was sobbing. And I kind of looked over at her a little bit, and, and she was there with her daughter, and, um, but there was no man with her. There was no husband. So I was kind of wondering, kind of quite, you know, was her husband in the war, and was she kind of reliving some of these things? Um, she was crying so hard that our chairs were bouncing up and down. And um, I actually got to a point during the movie where I actually was able to put my hand on her hand. Not like when, you, when your child is being annoying and you're like, stop doing that. But I just held, and she allowed me to hold her hand, and I just told her I'm sorry. That's all I could really say. I don't know what she's dealing with, and it wasn't the time or the place. But I did learn something very valuable by doing that. That when you're watching the movie, be careful of your elbows during the raft scene and hold on to your popcorn, because I hit her in the mouth. I got so scared. Okay, so if you're going to watch that movie, keep your elbows tucked in and your popcorn here. <laughs> and after I apologized to her, um, you know, she kind of giggled. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Well, the movie goes on, and eventually the, the war ends, the POWs come home, but that's where Louis Zampernini's demons start, began. Um, he began to have terrible nightmares every single night. And one of the nightmares, he, he recalls that he actually woke up choking his wife, thinking that she was one of, the, one of the guards. Alcohol abuse set in to mask the pain that he was dealing with every single night. His wife got to the point where she said, okay, I'm, I'm going to divorce you. This is it. I can't handle this. We're done. She ended up going to a Billy Graham crusade one night, and she becomes saved. And Billy Graham was still in town, and the next day she said, Louie, I don't know what this thing is about Jesus is all about, but I, all I know is you're coming with me the next night. And she drags Louie to the, to the crusade, and guess what? Louie gives his heart to Jesus Christ that night. The nightmare stopped. The drinking subsided and, and it goes on to even say that he gets to a place in his life where he's able to then tackle this thing called forgiveness it's powerful he went as far as going back in 1952 and meeting with many of the guards that held him captive and he he met with them and he told them individually that he forgave them for what they had done to him and even telling them about Jesus. And he even recounts that even a couple of them even gave their heart to Christ as well. Louis Zampernini was never able to meet with the bird um, because the man actually refused to meet him. It was not because he didn't forgive the gentleman. But uh, what, I, what I was going to say about this is if you get a chance, go to YouTube and just type in his last name, Z Zampernini. There's one video specifically that I want, to, I want to recount a little bit. It's one minute and 39 seconds. And it's called Simply Faith. Louis Zampernini reads his letter to the bird. He's written a letter to this gentleman. And as he was reading, this is one of the quotes that I took for it. He said, loved replaced the hate that I had for you. I forgave you and now would hope that you would become a Christian. This is from the same man that nearly took his life almost on a daily basis and humiliated this man. He's looking at him and saying, I love you, I forgive you, and I want more than anything for you to understand this love and acceptance as well by this man named Jesus. Love replaced hate. And what I find amazing that, that Louis Zampernini, he found redemption not in judgment, not in revenge, but just simply in forgiveness. And after we walked out of that movie, I realized that's just something that we can all learn from as well. Powerful movie. It's not a feel-good movie when you, walk out of the, when you walk out of there. It's not like Remember the Titans where you're, you know, you're pumping your fists up in the air. 
So how do we forgive? How does the process work? Um, I'm going to give you a recipe. And the recipe comes from Matthew 7. Let me read it to you. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why, why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, here, let me help that get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, get rid of the log that's in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck that's in your friend's eye. Scripture tells us right there, we have our own faults, yes? And we're called that we need to take that plank out of our very own eye first before we go out there and we start pulling out the plank and trying to find the speck in someone else's eye. We need to understand that we all have faults. We, we all come with that already in us. To the point, even to the point where our faults are in someone else, we're trying to see it, we're trying to, trying to get it out, and we don't even recognize that we have a lumber yard sitting right here in front of us. Uh, Scott had sent me a picture about this very thing, and it kind of reminded me of a, a Three Stooges um, episode, you know, where, where something is happening. So one's got the plank in his eye, and he's swinging around and whacks the one guy, and the other one says he needs something, and turns, and, and just everything is going haywire. We have to first deal with this thing that's in our own eye before we can go out and to deal with other things and, and with other people. This happens when we worry more about the faults of other people than when we look at, introspectively at ourselves first. When we're not concentrating on removing our own faults and our own issues. Um, kind of reminds me of the story I was reading with the high school kids last week about the adulterous woman that's brought before Jesus. And uh, they're ready to stone her. They're ready to pass judgment. They have everything that they're ready to, to do. And, and what does Jesus say? You without sin can cast the first stone. Thump, 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 thump. All the rocks drop. Well, if we want to start a fresh new year this year, we've got to, we've got to remove the plank from our own eye. We've got to do that. And so I, I, we're going to, and I, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I pray that you would do that this week. You're going to go home and you're going to make a list of your own faults. Okay? Mine is called Mark's Messy List. You call it whatever you want, to, you want to name it. Now, it's important here. You write your own list. Don't let your spouse write it for you. Because the list is going to be a lot longer if your spouse writes it for you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open myself up here and I'm going to give you a quick glance inside. Um, on my messy list, I'm quick to judge. I already kind of admitted that a little bit. I'm undisciplined. Some of you might go, what? Yeah. Um, at times, I can be as lazy as a coon dog on a hot summer's day. I, I, can, I can just be lazy, and I'm good with that. I'm sarcastic. I'm overweight. Not by much, but a little bit. And I care way too much of what people think of me. That's part of my list. That's part of my list. To remove that plank... We need to start with that constant uh, realization of who we are as a person. We need to know ourselves. We need to understand ourselves. We need to have that awareness and even get to the point where you get to admit your own faults. There's something freeing about that when you can say, I'm this. Here's a fact, and I didn't get this from Oprah. People who are aware of their own faults tend to be less judgmental and more forgiving. When you know what's in here first, 
you're less judgmental and you're more forgiving for other people. The third thing that we need to understand if we're to love in the light of what matters most is we must love intentionally. We must have a purpose in doing it. Love intentionally. Colossians 3 says, put on love. 1 John 3.18 says, little children, stop just saying we love people. Let's really love them and show it by our actions. Let's do it by our actions. Let's just quit saying we do it and let's actually physically go out there and love the people. Um, love those people, and there's three parts here. Intentionally love your family and those that are closest to you. And if, you're, if you don't know who those significant others in your family are and you're kind of wondering who, who I should be doing this to, think about these are the people that are going to be in the front row of your funeral. These are the people that are significant in your life. Tell them every single day that they're significant. Tell them you love them. Tell them that you need them. Remind them that there was no one like you. And remind them that you thank God for them every single day. Not a, not a phone call goes by, and I'm the baby of seven, that I don't end the conversation with one of my siblings or my dad and saying, I love you. It's, not, it's, it's a little bit different in my wife's relationship with, with her conversations. They don't ever say it. It's not that she doesn't care for him or love for him. It's just I've just made it a conscious effort over my entire life. That's what we say. I love you before you hang up. Um, at bedtime, there's a battle, a love battle that goes on when I'm putting my kids to bed every single night. I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I love you to the state of Texas. It always ends up, and my daughter wins this one, I love you as far as God can reach. I can't beat that. There's nothing, there's nothing bigger than that. We tell, our, we tell our kids we love them every single time, day, and then we're proud of them. And they mean the world to us. And I don't think our children can hear that enough. And you might be here with your children and lean over to them and give them an elbow and tell them you love them. And I don't care if they're 40 years old or not. Yeah, there's a lot of elbowing going on right now. We need to intentionally love the poor, the broken, and the outcast. Matthew 25 tells us about that. We need to commit to going out and serving the poor. And we have 20 members of Novation Church that are doing it right now in the Dominican Republic. They have chosen to go out and to serve the brokenhearted, the outcast, and the poor. We as a church at Thanksgiving went out to Civic Center Park and we helped feed the homeless. And that was an amazing time. I got to meet some incredibly wonderful people. But the, but the thing was, though, when we got there, the line was blocks and blocks and blocks long. And even after um, serving food for two hours, that line was still as long as the eye could see. There's a lot of hurting people out there. And I'm willing, and if somebody would join me, and, and let's load up my grill in the back of the, uh, your pickup truck, and let's go down and let's just serve hot dogs one day. Let's just go out and do something like that. It's not going to cost me much to do that and get all the buns in. And just go out and serve the poor. Go out and serve. Or even better yet, um, somebody Facebooked me some information. Make homeless bags. You get a big Ziploc bag and you fill it up with necessity items. Things that people can use, a homeless person can use almost immediately. And you take that Ziploc bag full with all that stuff with socks and gloves and whatever else you put in there. And you put it under the front seat of your car. And when, you, when you're ready to turn on the overpass and you see the person on your left hand side there. Reach out and give them that bag. And just tell them you love them. Maybe there's a track in there and you tell them about who Jesus is in your 20 seconds before the light turns green. That's just something we can tangibly do for the people that are around us. 
So I encourage you to do that um, this year, to maybe step out what that's going to look like. The third thing that I want to say, and the final thing that I'm going to wrap up with this, is that we need to intentionally love the church, and we need to love one another. John 13 reminds us of that. And it says, um, do we, and my question is, do we want to be good examples um, as a believer to this world? If we do, we have to do two things. We've got to love God, we've got to love the church, and we've got to love other people. Now, I've been around for long enough in, in church settings to understand that the Christian landscape, it can be cruel from time to time. There's church divisions. Maybe there's even family divisions as well. People coming disillusioned with the church, it stems from the fact that we've forgotten the greatest commandment that Jesus gave us, to love God and to love people. There's just two things, and we, and we, and we make a mess out of this often. We allow petty, selfish ambitions to creep in to separate us from true communities with, with people that, we, that we're there with. If you haven't figured this out yet, people are going to hurt other people. Maybe not intentionally, but it's going to happen. You know why? It's because we're family. And families fight. It's going to happen. And I'm grateful that many of you love me, but if I haven't made you mad yet, please wait because I'm going to. I'm going to disappoint you, and I'm probably going to make you mad. But what I'm going to do shortly after that, after I pass judgment first, and then I become that, that mercy part, I'm going to apologize to you, and I'm going to ask you to forgive me. That's just part of the process. It's just the way it's going to go. Um, for those of you that have children in here, and we're going to take communion in a couple minutes, and if you have children, this would be a good time for you to break, go grab your kids so they can join us for, for communion. That was my, that was my um, commercial. As we wrap up, and we're in, we've already entered into this new year of 2015, I want to ask you a question. What is going to be different 365 days from now? Hopefully you'll be sitting in these seats. They might be even be cushier by that time. Just watch. Are you going to love the one who chose you, who adopted you? Are you going to love him more? What can you do this year in the next 365 days to grow in your ability to love other people, to lay aside the, the, the unforgiveness and the bitterness? My prayer, and I know the leadership of this church's prayer is this, is that you will seek Christ with all of your heart, that you will do that first and foremost, that you'll grow in the knowledge of him. And this is a great way to do it right here is this book. By reading it and understanding it and, and getting into the Bible studies like we did this morning. The men's and the women's group this morning was phenomenal, I heard. Continue to do that. Continue to grow yourself. Continue to love like you're God's child. Love like you're forgiven. And be intentional with your love. Allow him, God, to change you.